If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One from Eagle Speak. We appreciate y'all joining us today for another edition of Midrats, and we especially want to thank those that are with us live today. Because today we're going to have our farewell to July free-for-all, as with our usual free-for-all format, which I'm not sure what the difference is between that and a melee, but maybe it's just to change the words. But we like to keep uh, an open mind, as we do with every show, but on our free-for-alls and our melees, we keep an open topic. So if you are with us live, you can scroll down to the bottom of the show page. That's where you will find the chat room. We're going to be monitoring that during the course of the show. Paul is there, as always. Uh, he'll welcome you on board. And if you have some observations that you would like to share or some questions or topics you would like for us to ask each other or to chat about, please put it in the, in the uh, chat room, and we'll do our best to get, to, uh, get to it during the course of the hour. And if you're feeling really extroverted and uh, you want to give us what for, you can always call the studio line as well. It will be open, and the call-in number is area code 347-308-8397. And you don't have to write it down because it's right there on the show page. Eagle One, happy southern summer to you. How are things doing for you today? Well, it's uh, it's a good day. We only had heavy rain for a little while. <laughs> How are you? Well, how, are, how are you? <laughs> it's uh, see, this is a family show, so I'm not going to use a navy term to describe hot and humid stuff. But yeah, it's uh, it's the price we pay for the other eight months of the year. It's 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 hot and humid. And when we get done here today, I've got to go um, keep the jungle at bay. So I I if you don't hear from me again, uh, tell my wife I loved her, but I don't have a defibrillator in the house. But I'll I'll try not to overdo it. Okay, good. Today has been an exciting you, week. We had all kind, we had all kinds of exciting stuff published. We had your your excellent article on the uh, on uh, the failure of the institutions, uh, and then we had that inside the Pentagon report from Politico about about the future of the fleet and points made by uh, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks and people responding to that. And then the Chief of Naval Operations came out with his his new uh, uh, navigation plan, uh, 2022, which updates the one from last year, or about 18 months ago. And uh, gosh, we've got all kinds of good stuff. You know, the, the uh, National Defense Authorization Act has some Asia provisions in it. We got a nice Hudson thing by Brian Clark and Timothy Walton about a plan to achieve naval aviation superiority this decade. And uh, and then we've had a lot of pushback from the Army guys. So it's, it's been an exciting few days. It, it has. You know, why are they doing this stuff in the middle of summer when you have fewer eyeballs on it, I guess? Or you can say that you're taking advantage of uh, uh, the, the news gap. But you're right. It was, uh, it was a busy week. I still have not um, had a chance to dive into the NDAA stuff that I'd like to, because I know there was some really good stuff in there and some stuff that might have your, your puzzler puzzling. And yeah, the, um, <laughs> between the, my CNO article, my Hicks article, uh, 
and the failure of the institutions article. I uh, I wrote more than I thought I would last week. But the interesting thing is here, and I think from a substantive point of view, that the order of importance was how I published it. First, I wrote about uh, the article that involved Deputy Secretary of Defense Hicks, who, uh, whether you agree with her or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, she knows the environment. She knows what's going on there. She understands where her power is. And what I've been impressed with her is she has seen both up the chain, down the chain, and to the side of the chain where there are, are – how can I put this politely? There are gaps in competence that she's able to step into, and, and she, I think she's fully leveraged the power that she has, and she's taking power from other areas, from people who either don't have the uh, the capability or the bureaucratic knowledge to be able to, to use it, and she – for, for the things that, that she wants to prioritize and she wants to accomplish in the service of our national defense, whether you agree with her or not, you've got to respect how she's working. Very impressive. Um, you know, we'll see how the results come out one way or another. I think she has some really great ideas. I think some of the ideas I need to think about some more. But uh, uh, she's, she's a very effective deputy secretary of defense, at least from my point of view. And then uh, the the CNO's navigation plan, which uh, as especially people who who read my stuff, we don't talk about him all that much here on MedRats, but but we do. No, I I had some serious disagreements with the CNO on a few specific issues, but um, I I tried to give him a clean slate with everything he does. Uh, He's a, a, a talented professional with a great record, et cetera. And uh, a couple of people send me notes going, you know, what are you doing praising the CNO? I'm like, you got to call balls and strikes with what, you know, both both you and I have been doing 18, 19 years. I think we both have a good track record of calling balls and strikes. And I think the, the CNO's navigation plan, um, especially the introduction, he, I mentioned in my, in my, my post last week or this week, depending on how you define Sunday, um, I think he could have almost stopped at the end of the introduction. I think it's really it was really powerful. It was uh, judiciously written. It wasn't too wonky. It wasn't you know a thousand and one acronyms and buzzwords spot welded together into it, a long long sentence. It wasn't. It was well done. Uh, there were a couple things in the body that were kind of uh, you know you can you have to look hard to nitpick on it. I think the CNO and the team that put that navigation plan together. Uh, did a good job. Uh, whether it'll have the effect that we want, I don't think really matters. But you need to give the bureaucracy and the sailors something to to look at and go, okay, we're doing this. This this kind of is in line with what the CNO said here. Again, yeah, I, I just thought it was uh, for what it is. It was a good a good document. But I think of the three things I wrote, the least important thing <laughs> was the one that got the most eyeballs. My, my failure of the institutions post, um, which has been in draft for a long time. I think I've actually mentioned it once or twice on our shows that I'd eventually pull the trigger on it. And I just I just decided to do that. And the executive summary of it, and uh, I just encourage folks to, to go over to you know, Blogspot or Substack, if you look at it, it's titled Failure of the Institutions, is one thing we've talked about here for the – 13 years we've been doing MedRats is we've always looked for who is going to drive the discussion that our maritime services can get what they want, get what they need, get what our nation requires them to have. And it was hard to do with the headwind of, of Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, Iraq is on the back burner, slow boil in a small pot. Um, Afghanistan, the humiliation was, 11 months ago, mostly forgotten. And a lot of people are asking, who's going to lead that charge? And we traditionally look at, when you look at the major navalist, maritime, naval service institutions, uh, people look at the uniform service the, led by the Admiralty with the CNO at the top and then the civilian leadership that they report to. And I think we have enough evidence 
in the last year. But they're not they're not going to push to upset either uh, the the structures we're looking for or what's being proposed in line with the revolt of the admirals uh, that we saw in the um, uh, early days of the nuclear age with the B-36 versus the carriers, where a lot of people put their already full careers on the line and really uh, saved the Navy that we would need uh, in Vietnam especially. And uh, Or Vice Admiral Tom Connolly, who uh, gave up his chance for a fourth star to to help kill the F-111 Bravo that was supposed to be the carrier fighter for all the right reasons. Uh, that was a more of a, of, a, of a singular battle with some good minor supporting characters in the revolt of the admirals. But those naval institutions aren't coming to the fore. And then people look for the non-official institutions uh, that we have. And you, know, you can rack and stack, but I like to you know, keep it simple. So if you look at the two major institutions that are independent, that are you know, on the civilian side, not governmental, uh, you have the Navy League of the U.S., who has their new shop that, that uh, Admiral Fogo has stood up, and they're starting to staff out. they got, I think, a half dozen people on staff now, a variety of roles. Um, the Center for Maritime Security, I hope I got that right, and we were, we were had that, uh, Admiral Fogo on to talk about it, and they're, they're starting to get their footing, but they're not quite there yet. Um, it's, it's going slow, and in some ways, I think his comment about uh, – and we talked about it, I think, two weeks ago or maybe last week, that the the Navy needs support. It doesn't need oversight, which I think is uh, 180 degrees off in the direction we need to go in. But that's just a personal disagreement. And uh, then you have the U.S. Naval Institute, which is the other big institution. Those two are the lead. And the U.S. Naval Institute, that's, that's not their mission. They... Uh, when you look at what they're doing in the public space outside of their publishing house, which is really a separate operation and is really unique, uh, the, uh, you have internal discussions. They have their maritime dialogue. is isn't so much of a dialogue as it is uh, an inside shop discussion where you have staff talking to a four-star, a three-star, a two-star, having – Navair come up and you know give you their slide deck. That if people think the Naval Institute is going to really advocate, that's not what they do. They're not going to do that. So if navalists and those that, that think that the the U.S. maritime side of the equation needs more to be able to do what the Chinese are going to require us to do west of Wake if they want to make trouble, where where can we t- turn to? If you're, if you're not going to get the argument made by the uniform or the civilian leadership from the executive branch, which I think is fair, they report to a boss too. Their boss doesn't want to do it. They're not going to do it. These big civilian institutions aren't going to do it or may not be able to do it for building reasons for a couple of years, which we may not have time for. Where do you have to turn to? Where is the other institution that has access to levers of money, power, influence? That's Congress which happens to be the institution that has the lowest competence and approval rating in our country. But I, to me, having sit on that post for, for months and thinking about it, it wasn't a happy answer on my part. It was an unfortunate answer, but I think it's realistic that the only solution that, that those who desire a greater maritime capability relative to what the Chinese are building west of Wake the solution, uh, whether you're talking about big issues like updating Goldwater Nichols or minor issues like getting money for shipbuilding, it's got to be in Congress, it's got to be bipartisan, and it has to be sustained. And that's where I think our efforts will, will go to. And again, that was the least important because it was mostly just my ideas. Like you, I'm, I'm an opinion blogger, and I have opinions, and put them out there. But it had nine times the normal number of unique eyeballs looking at it than a normal piece of writing I do. It had 72 shares just on the sub side of the house, which tells me Blogspot probably had to round that up to 100. I usually get five to a dozen shares on an average post. Uh, and I had people from active duty enlisted to retired four stars drop me a line. 
um, to bring up a point or two. And the only real um, negative in, impact I got, and I'll apologize to people who took it this way, would be the picture I chose for it, uh, which was I did a Google search for a sleep on watch, a sleep on the bridge, a sleep on duty. It was something like that. And that was one of the pictures that came up. I wanted to get a picture of somebody sleeping over on the starboard bridge or something. But um, that's what came up. It was just a bunch of midshipmen uh, sitting there asleep. They're not identified as Naval Academy midshipmen. I don't mention the Naval Academy anywhere in the post. But, oh boy, some people really got touchy about that. It's like, so if I heard any Naval Academy feelings, I'm not sorry. <laughs> My intention. It's just a good picture. I did have one um, – um, one mid-grade officer reached out to me uh, that I've, I've known since this individual was a midshipman, and they said, those were my plebes, LOL. So that individual found humor in it. But anyway, those, I, that, that's kind of what I wrote about this week. I just think what was interesting, and maybe it tells something about the environment that we're in, is people are most interested in looking for some institution or, or some leverage that can make things happen, can get us off this place that we're, we're constantly in this, we're in this loop where we, we have problems, whether we're talking about maintenance, whether we're talking about numbers, whether we're talking about flop sweat on round two of a war game, because all of a sudden we don't have any logistic ships left, that people want an institution out there that can help move the argument because we're, we're it's not happening with with the usual institutions we've relied on so i think i've used up my too much of a quote at the start of the show but that was an outline of the stuff that you were talking about yeah I, you know i'm looking back at the how do we how do we get people to the american public to appreciate what what the navy does for them and and you know you have to almost go back to the Reagan years when John Lehman was Secretary of the Navy, because that's where the 600-ship Navy and a lot of the decline that followed the Vietnam War uh, began to be uh, dealt with. And Lehman was in the Secretary of the Navy's office for, what, six years? I mean, he was that, – that, we need that long-term leadership. We need somebody who's willing to go out and, and, uh, and, and push. Uh, the, the thing, and I guess the good news for uh, Lehman was that he had a president who was supportive of of uh, growing the navy, and uh, you know the, the other things that made some sense: the the uh, home porting ships in various areas instead of the fleet concentration points of that we have now. Uh, you know, all that stuff went away, but but uh, we the and I'll, I'll give credit to Jimmy Carter. Some of the things that we saw. Uh, that improved the Navy came to up during Carter's uh, uh, period in office, and they just didn't come to fruition until after he left. But, uh, you know, you, you need a strong advocate. You need somebody who who can sell the Navy to Congress and, you know, impress them with, if nothing else, with Congress. You, you've always got, you know, they've got to feed, they've got to give their voters something to uh, to uh, to chew on, and, and it, you got to follow the money. So, you know, the other day I saw that uh, John John Conrad or somebody was talking about uh, the one trillion dollars that uh, the Secretary of Transportation is getting. You know, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's great, but you know, obviously some people would like to put that into the Marad maritime uh, shipping stuff. But you know, how much do you think that's just going to go to local? the politicians for for contracts for road building and all the other stuff that they promised as uh, to rebuild America's infrastructure including bridges and you know all that other stuff so you know the point is that that uh, if you're going to have somebody who's going to be strong he's got to be able to sell the secretary of defense and the president on the need to develop a navy and and I, as much as I I don't know much about the current secretary of the navy seems like a decent human being but good gosh we need somebody who's more than that we need a we need a vigorous advocate and you almost have to go back to the days of teddy roosevelt and and uh mahan when you know the the uh the his the uh mahan book influence of sea power on history was it was a hot topic and was read widely and all that and then you know the the, the fact that theodore roosevelt and uh 
and uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt were both assistant secretaries of the Navy. I mean, that went a long way to their being willing to to uh, help the Navy expand during the times it needed to expand. And I tried to to be nice to the SECNAV. I think he, he, he's a nice guy. He's a great professional. He's an accomplished man. And I remember when we talked about him before, and I had always said that I always wanted a SECNAV, and I still do, somebody who um, preferably, I think, coming from Congress or somebody that knows politics, knows people, can tell you know which rib somebody's itching on so they can scratch it, can get things moving. And uh, because of his history and fundraising circles with the Democrat Party, I thought he's not an elected politician, but he knows the people, he knows politics because he's very successful at what he had done. But I think another part of that of being political is, uh, especially with that background, you're a foot soldier. Uh, you aren't a leader as a fundraiser, and that's his background. So he's going to take his marching orders from above, and he will uh, loyally execute that as much as he has. You're right. We need a different personality in there, and preferably somebody that has the top cover to not quit in disgust or be fired quickly from doing it because you have uh, habits have been developed over time and are reinforced by statute and tradition that's going to make us very hard to break out of a a template we've had for decades. But it really, when you, when you look at the challenges west of Wake, uh, it's clear it's a maritime and an aerospace battle. I did get a kick. I saw on Twitter, I think it was maybe Charlie that put it out there, that the land forces were having their meeting in Hawaii. And it was beautiful. It was a backup picture of the middle of the Pacific with Hawaii in the middle and the globe. It is all water. It's like, yes, please let the land component talk about what they need in the Pacific right in the middle of the big blue. A little tiny brown dot in the middle of the big blue. I still don't think a lot of people really um, appreciate you know, what we're looking at there. Uh, but that's okay. That's, that's, quote, our, unquote, job. I mean, you and I are, are two little ants running around the forest floor, but a lot of people need to have the conversation just to keep educate and motivate each other to keep this conversation going because it's, it's not going to happen on its own. Yeah, and I, I think what we've – and I, I just put this in the comment, the chat room, but – Everything we've talked about in the last few weeks is the fact that we need an overarching uh, maritime strategy that encompasses the Navy, the, Mer the Merchant uh, Marine, the uh, Marine Corps, and things like the Air Force. The Air Force has at least one asset. I think it's the B-1 bomber that can can, can actually fire anti-ship cruise missiles. Uh, you know, we, we need to get some of these other – and when you're looking at doing stuff these days and that, that uh, Hudson – uh, Institute regaining the high ground. Let me see if I can put that in the chat room. If I didn't already, uh, you know they have some pretty good charts in, in their in their work. It was uh, Brian Clark and Tim Walton uh, about the ranges of chi what what China's got and what the effect that has on where we can actually place our forces uh, west of of uh, Wake and and you know it's not a pretty picture. It's uh, you know, and when you're when you're don't have the long range assets uh, to uh, when when your when your carrier aircraft major carrier aircraft is an F-18, uh, whether it's the Super Hornet or not, uh, it doesn't have the legs to go the distances that are required out there. So you know the the refueling from a drone, great. But there are a lot of whole lot of other issues. We're going to need uh, some major shore-based assets to come help us out at sea. And uh, that article by uh, this regaining the high ground against China, uh, it, it really does discuss that. It's kind of interesting. I'm not thoroughly familiar with it completely, but I'm going to read it in great detail in the next in the next few days. But uh, you know, we just we. 
you have to be cognizant of the fact the world has changed. These anti-ship cruise missiles, these long-range things, even though the, the and, uh, missiles that can wipe out bases on Guam and, and, you know, I don't know what kind of salvo, I think we had a discussion about this, what kind of requirement it would take to, to fight off a determined attack against Guam. Uh, you know, it's, it's a struggle, and we need to really... Uh, take a hard look at what we're going to do and how we're going to do it, and and that's the fleet. There was a pretty good article in, in Proceedings by a young ensign, uh, which I'll dig up here in a minute, but, you know, his argument, again, is the same one that some of us have made, that we don't need uh, a fleet of super large ships. We sure do need a lot of ships, and the more ships you have, small, big, cheap, uh, I don't care if they're carrying the U.S. equivalent of, of uh, the club missile from, from Russia, you know, make it a targeting issue, and use your small ships to to fight those those uh, gray maritime forces of the uh, of the Chinese. We we need presence, and we need a lot more stuff than we have, and you can do it on the cheap. We've we've had many discussions about uh, how we can do that with less money than than buying a you know a couple of billion dollars destroyers, but. Uh, uh, it, it just we, we need to get moving. Somebody needs to start pushing the go button and uh, and demanding that the Navy uh, move forward these things. And 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 uh, it doesn't have you know it, it's like the old John Wayne movie. They were expendable. You know we don't we we have to recognize that sometimes we're going to put people in harm's way and they're not going to be in a position to perhaps to come back from it. And that's no different really than flying a fighter plane or a, or any other kind of aircraft into harm's way. We just have to kind of treat some of these smaller ships uh, sort of like a fighter plane. Well, let's, um, I want to pull something up that you and I talked about in the pre-show that I think folds in pretty well with that. And it's also one of our favorite topics here, the unsexy but important. And uh, one thing that caught my eye is uh, we've already we brought online whole one of our new Oilers, the USNS uh, John Lewis class. And when I was just I said, oh, let me pull it up and just look at it for a little bit. And two things stuck out of me. First is we're building six. I'm sorry that that's not enough. I know the accountants can tell you it's enough, but if you want to have a war fighting Navy, you're going to need more than six of this class. That's the first thing that popped up in my mind. And the second thing that came to mind is they talk about how it's wired for SeaWiz or SeaRam, and it has some cruiser weapons, which means <laughs> probably just uh, uh, 30 caliber machine guns or maybe some M2 50 cals uh, to to decorate somebody's bridge. But it had me think to. I think one of the, the great fighting ships of World War II, at least for me, was the oiler, the Neosho. And uh, for those that are familiar with the Battle of Coral Sea, uh, that ship and the two walking wounded, uh, I think it was two or maybe it was one, anyway, destroyers that were with her uh, because of the Japanese reconnaissance plane just saw a big ship and said carrier, but the, they put up uh, against that carrier air wing that came after them thinking they were the U.S. carriers, you know, made the difference in the Battle of Coral Sea, and they, they don't get enough credit for the battle they put up. But you look at the Neosho. That oiler at that time was, you, you can find slightly different numbers here, but she had four five-inch guns and an equal number of 20 millimeters. Roughly, she could put up an anti-aircraft capability comparable to somewhere between a destroyer escort and a no-kidding DD. Our oilers need that capability fast, as in bolt, bolt, plug, and go. But I don't know whether SeaWiz and SeaRam would meet the modern 21st equivalent of that type of, of anti-air defense with a lot of the weapons you've talked about. And maybe we can talk about some of the other lessons that are coming out of the Ukraine conflict. But I would be really curious what it would take to get at least uh, – ESSM, the Evolve Sea Sparrow missile capability, quad packet, you know, how do you bolt that or, or get that type of capability inherent on that type of ship, something more than a SeaWiz or a SeaRam, because especially, and I know, I know our friend John Conrad is in the chat room, we talked about it when we had him on board here, is we know very well in case the balloon goes up, is we're sending those ships and other ships west by themselves. We just 
that's just the plan because they don't have a choice. And they've got to have a greater inherent ability to defend themselves. So I would love to, to sit down with the engineers for the for John Lewis class and say, hey, how would you do this? Tell me why you can't do this. And uh, I know there's some legal issues as well, but you've got a background on those types of ships. Um, you know, what are your thoughts uh, about that? Is it something that is desirable, needed, uh, or do you think from a ship alt point of view, they could be upgunned like that? Which, by the way, one of my pet peeves is every war we've ever had, one of the first things they learn in the first few months is our ships don't have enough weapons. Yeah, it's an interesting problem because uh, when, when I was on an ammunition ship, a U.S. Navy crew manned ammunition ship, we had, I don't know, a couple hundred, close to 300 sailors on board, I think. And, you know, the military sealift command takes over a ship like that, and they'll put 123 crew on there. And, you know, but our crew was, first thing is when we got busy, and I, I put up a Twitter thing on this. When we got busy, it was 24 hours a day for bursts of time, maybe a week. You'd be out, you know, rearm destroyers during the day and carriers at night. And and so your crew was, was worn out uh, pretty, pretty quickly. And that was with, you know, three times the number of sailors that, the, the MSC has now. The MSC people are are professionals. They're they're good at their jobs. They don't waste a lot of time and effort on things. But you know, they many of them are specialists. So <laughs> if you need people to man gun mounts, the, you're going to have to add a, a military debt. I mean, some people call them armed guards and all that stuff. And if you're going to add that, then you're going to have to have weapons that match the threats you're going to face. You know, are there is when you're running a ship from uh, Hawaii to to Guam is your is your threat long range enemy air uh, coming out of China and you know I have questions about that but what about you know what kind of escort force you have and and uh, you know the MSC people and some of the other shipping people have been already been told you're on your own well that doesn't make much sense but, you know <laughs> you can't have a, a supply train that is going to be interrupted by by a uh, by a submarine uh sitting off Hawaii i mean that's just that doesn't make any sense you've got to have something better than that so you need an escort force and you need weapons on those ships that are capable of dealing with whatever the potential threat is and then you're going to have to man the ship to the level where you have enough people to do that that sort of job and it's uh it gets it gets uh, interesting, so I, I I'm you know and, and I put up a table on on Twitter, but it came from a 2005 study I think that CBA somebody did, uh, you know the an, an oiler in the Navy had 324 crewmen and this the civil uh, MSC crew was 106 with a 21 person mill that ammunition ships 413 yeah. navy crew 123 uh civilians 40 people on the mill debt afs's now a lot of these ships have been combined now but afs's had 486 sailors 135 civilian sailors when msc has them with a 49 person mill debt and the aoe's uh, had 583 crew members and navy crew and were manned by 160 uh, civilians when MSC had them with a 28-person mill debt. And I don't know if that mill debt includes on the AOEs the uh, the air debt that, that we put on there. So it's uh, it's a challenge, and I think uh, John John is noting that the MSC people are having trouble getting civilians too. I mean, it's uh, for their ships. So uh, you know, there's there's some real issues here about the size of the navy and the size of the uh, support force, logistic support force that we need, and how they ought to be manned. And it it is uh, it's a difficult problem. But again, you need somebody who understands these issues, an overarching military and uh, mar uh, maritime strategy that covers all this ground, so that you know you don't have the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing or coming up with a whole different. Uh, naval maritime strategy than the one that we're, we're trying to use to support our, our, our fleet and our country. Yeah, it's, and I'll be the first one to make snarky comments about, about Twitter, but it all depends on how you curate your, your timeline and your feed and who you block and who you mute and who you follow. But I initially just grinned when I saw it, but, and we talked about it briefly on a couple of shows here the last few months, but uh, 
it's really making more and more sense. And one of the, the best extended threads I've seen, and there were a few other players that came into it, but the mayor player, major players was uh, Sal Mercagliano, John Conrad, Blake Herzinger, uh, talking about how you would put together a maritime department. Because the, the people who right now have the responsibility for the care and feeding, selling and defending of that capability uh, have failed. I guess that could be a follow-on failure of the institutions post on there. But I have to study harder for that one than the other one. Um, that it's, it's again, it's you want to call it criminal, but it's not criminal. It's just entitled negligence is one way of, of looking at it. And it's, it's along those lines of, you know, one of the reasons why I did the failures of the institution, because you have these accumulating problems that if you believe that I do, that we have a, a window over the next uh, three to ten years of having a, a confrontation with China and the Western Pacific unless we just walk away from it, that uh, there are certain things that we can't waste another decade uh, fiddling around. And just like before World War II, those armies that paid attention to the lessons of the Spanish Civil War were able in half a decade or so to be able to shape their military forces and their plannings to accentuate those lessons that were learned imperfectly and not directly, but that were learned uh, during the Spanish Civil War. And uh, that popped into my head uh, this weekend when, for, for those that are monitoring it, the, uh, the, the Russian headquarters, which, by the way, I think we're – Sevastopol is probably on the same latitude as uh, North Carolina, so uh, I guess they're kind of like coastal Carolina, so maybe off on the Grand Banks type of climate. Um, it was Russian Navy Day, and all appearances are that the uh, Ukrainians decided to spoil their Navy Day, and, and uh, they hit the Russian Navy headquarters to wake up the staff weenies. And it, it had me thinking that a lot of the things that, have developed recently and recently could be a few decades uh, that the Ukraine Russian conflict, not just on land, but at sea is tapping us on the shoulder and telling us, this is what y'all need to be ready for in the big war. that's going to come long range precision fires have completely changed the definition of what a rear area is. What is the range of those weapons? What's their circle error of probability and if you're under them, like most of our fixed positions are from Guam West, you can't make assumptions that they're they're not threatened. And how do you mitigate that threat? Uh, I think that everybody who can is going to try to build or buy or borrow or steal something that has the capability of an ATACMS, which is the single for those that have been following the Russia. Um, Ukrainian conflict, you have HIMARS, which is the wheeled vehicle that uh, can carry six normal-sized missiles, and the what is the M270? Uh, I could be wrong there. The tracked version can carry double that number. However, the HIMARS, it's so big, and it has that 300-kilometer-plus range that um, it, a HIMARS can only carry one and the larger tracked vehicle can just carry two. But everybody's going to want some type of capability like that in more. The Chinese have it in spades. I don't know how what their circle area probability is, but numbers can do a lot for you in that area. But they're going to want that capability. How do you defend about that inside of 300 to 500 kilometers of where your enemy can get to? Are you configured for that? Do you have the ability to put them there? Uh, and there's also the issue of the small to large drones, whether you're talking about that commercial quadcopter, they can drop a couple of hand grenades in a solo cup, or the ones that have repurposed some old Cold Warrior-shaped charge warheads that you can have something the size of a 16-ounce Coke that can destroy a tank. To the larger drones, uh, I know before the russia retaining conflict, we talked a lot about the... Russian electronic warfare capabilities, and again, who knows what information we have behind the the, the cipher door on the on this 
um, skiff about this, but obviously the electronic warfare is not being effective all over the place because both sides are using these drones to great effect. Uh, the And a lot of the problem is that, and again, I'm sure there's stuff in the skiff that can give you a nice graph of this, but I think it's clear and obvious that we have developed our air defenses, as has everybody else, against relatively, even with stealth, relatively large cross-section, fast-moving aircraft and missiles. How do you adjust those logarithms and sensors to be able to deal with smaller, slower, lower items? Will you even see them? If you do see them, uh, is your warhead able to take them out? Uh, I think that's that challenge of how you take those things out of the sky as opposed to letting them hover over your, your trenches uh, without opposition. That's that's a big challenge, and I think we're going to learn more. We have, what, about 90 days till winter normally sets in there, maybe 75 days, that uh, the bow wave of Western weapons is just now starting to get there. So by the time winter hits, you're going to have more Western capabilities there on the front. It'll be interesting to see for those that are, are tracking such things. But uh, that's that's something we've talked about over the years in the challenge in the Western Pacific that uh, it's a small blessing for us that we've seen what's happening in the uh, Russia-Ukrainian war in that area of long-range precision fires that hopefully we got smart people and, and good jobs with uh, with a funding line that can get us ready for that because when the big war comes, I think that's part of the tranche of known knowns that are really going to come out in sharp relief, except we're going to be on the receiving end. Yeah, and it's the same problem. We we have successfully avoided over a huge number of years of going up against shore-based uh, capability, anti-ship uh, missile capabilities. And, uh, you know, fortunately for us, the at the time, the Iranians and the uh, Iraqis uh, did not have really good systems, but all that is getting improved. The Chinese are helping out. They've got these, you know, the we, we saw it off uh, Israel with the, uh, the C-801 or 301, whatever that missile is. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, it, it, we have to, and, and, and uh, uh, we know that this is going to be a problem. We've known it for a long time. The, the naval uh, Oh boy, we have people warning us for years. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Stop building these huge ships that carry everything. Uh, you know, we, we've we've probably maybe have beaten that horse to death, but we continue to. I don't understand the amphibious uh, configuration that we think we need. I, I don't know how much of that is driven just by the Marine Corps history, and how much of that is actually a need that we have. You know, I I don't want to question all that completely, but I I am fascinated by the fact that somebody now believes that we ought to use our amphibs to uh, uh, provide underway replenishment capabilities uh, if necessary. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, well, I, don't, I remember the amphibs just sucking up fuel and driving around in diamonds because we weren't doing any amphibious landings. I, you know, and, and if you're going to do amphibious landings, how are you going to do that in a contested environment uh, with all these anti-ship cruise missiles and stuff? I am, I am, uh, I, I know brainier people than me are working on this, but I just have uh, trouble wrapping my mind around how that's all going to work in a uh, in a truly contested environment. Yeah, I think when you when you war game that out, the the answers are troubling. <laughs> yeah, but you got to find some way to unclassify these uncomfortable conversations because uh, sometimes uh, fear and shame are great motivators. But if uh, fear and shame never makes it out from behind the door uh, in a way that can get capability and money behind it, then all you do is when everything blows up is people come out of the woodwork and go, I told you so. But by then it's too late. Um, uh, th th there's got to be some action on, on that front. And I, I want to bring up one little item because you know we've, we've, we've been talking about some TV stuff here, but – Short of an actual 
war with with China that I don't think anybody wants. I sure don't. Uh, If that never goes hot, never goes kinetic, as the cool kids like to say, we will continue to compete with them, not just economically, but for influence, for position, for um, shaping the international order in one way or another. I know that gets some people excited, but I'm sorry. The world is going to have to decide if they want an international order shaped by America and her allies' worldview are a world order norms and uh, processes based upon the People's Republic of China and Russia's worldview, because they're really the only friends they have are, are each other. Uh, the North Koreans, I think they all hate everybody, but you know what I mean. And uh, one of the disappointing things I saw today is um, word is out that Speaker Pelosi, who was supposed to go to Taiwan, that she won't be making that visit, that word got out that she was going. Uh, there was much kerfuffling in the kerfuffle zones, and the 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 Chinese uh, gnashed their teeth and rimmed their garments, and that succeeded, we think, and Pelosi not going, which is, which is unfortunate because uh, Speaker Pelosi – has an, a, a very commendable history here. And back in 1991, this would have been just a couple of years after the massacre at Tiananmen Square, uh, she and a few of her colleagues were visiting Beijing. They went to Tiananmen Square. And there's video of it. You can look it up. Uh, she unfurled a banner uh, on Tiananmen Square in honor of uh, the, the Chinese protesters who were slaughtered there. And, you know, had the Chinese police come over and raise all holy hell with her. So I think that probably uh, I'd put 20 bucks on it. Speaker Pelosi's desire to go to Taiwan uh, is consistent with her history. And if she's not going to go there, it's because uh, the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor had the executive branch uh, push back on her. I think it's a lost opportunity. And the best thing, whoever was responsible for leaking that uh, should probably be uh, tarred, feathered, and run out on a rail because the the greatest effect with the littlest blowback would have been if she just showed up. There she is in Taipei. Nobody can complain about it. Nobody can do anything about it. And if the Chinese are smart, they wouldn't say anything about it. But because they had an opportunity to make a public spectacle – If they could make Nancy Pelosi step down, they can make Nancy Pelosi and the United States lose face because the Chinese pressured them. Uh, It was an alpha move on the Chinese part, and if we give them that victory, then bad on us. But the the best thing would have been for Nancy Pelosi just to show up there, do her thing, and leave. It would do great things for the Taiwanese. It would have sent a great message to our our, our friends and friends adjacent in the area, and it would have tweaked the, the communist Chinese, which is always fun. But uh, as opposed to having a light win at that point, if uh, Nancy Pelosi, while she's in the Pacific, follows through with what news reports had today and does not go to Taiwan, it's a, a great victory for the People's Republic of China. And in my opinion, uh, the United States has been uh, damaged by us, and in, in essence, backing down because people said grumpy things. It's, it was unfortunate. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think our necessary, our, our politicians understand the concept of face uh, as it plays out in the in the Far East. I mean, everybody kind of, well, yeah, I know what face is, but I don't think they appreciate uh, how important it is to, if you're, if you're going to be um, the defender of all that is right and true in the world, you've got to live up to that. You cannot back down in the face of somebody going, well, we're going to rumble, uh, you know, make loud noises. In worst cases, you know, we could uh, send airplanes up and blow your uh, Speaker of the House out of the water. You know, and, and a lot of it, too, the Chinese, I don't think, understand it. Or maybe they understand, but they don't really grasp uh, 
but because that a distinction. Anyway, they don't get where her role is. You know, the President Biden cannot tell her what to do. He can't tell her not to go. He can't tell her, you know, it would be uncomfortable and all that stuff. But it's it's you know the she's the leader of or the majority leader of the House of Representatives. That's a whole different ball of, of wax than somebody in the in the Biden administration. Although they do share a common political party. Um, but you know that's not the way the Chinese are organized. And yeah, but if they yeah anything they can do to humiliate the U.S. or make the U.S. back down, and we've already given in a number of ways. You know the, by doing these uh, freedom of navigation things instead of uh, which is good. They're they're better than doing nothing. But there's a lot of other things we could be doing out there that uh, we discussed with uh, on recent shows. Uh, you know putting assets in place uh, to uh, strengthen our allies' uh, ability to resist Chinese influence. But the minute you back off a little bit from resisting that influence yourself, then uh, yeah, it's, it's just not a it's not a good thing and not a good picture. No, and here's along the lines of that that information information war public affairs. Uh, maybe a little bit of psyops thrown in there here and there, but something that was bothering me, um, it just, when I was working uh, out in 100-degree heat, I'll, I'll, I'll blame the heat and humidity for my brain clicking off on some things, but that's okay. That, that's why I beat myself up outside working. It's, uh, it's good therapy. But one thing that came to mind is, and I don't, I almost don't want to mention it, because um, it's a punchline to a joke, but it's a very real thing. What has been seen cannot be unseen. Um, I almost don't want to mention it because I don't want people to look it up because I know some people will, but we're all adults here. Um, One thing that that came out last week was a absolutely uh, hellish video of something that, Men have done to each other in combat from time immortal, but uh, the, you know we only recently had the ability to capture it. Um, the Russians mutilating, torturing, and eventually executing a Ukrainian prisoner of war, and that's not the only isolated incident. There's also some indications that uh, um, some of the uh, Ukrainians that surrendered in Maripol were executed or killed in mass. Same thing, really. Um, the for those that know that area of the country, I mean, there's a great book out there called Bloodlands. Uh, it's whether you're talking about the Mongols or whether you're talking about the Waffen SS and the Einsatzgruppen or the um, Stalin's commissars and their starvation in the 30s. I mean, that whole area has a very very thick nerves in history of just horrific, horrific stuff that only shows up periodically in other parts of the world. But in the bloodlands, in the, that part of Eastern Europe, it's, it's very regular. But that's not the only example. And where is the Western human rights lobby? Where is the the peace protesters? Where are the huge marches in London and Berlin and Rome and everywhere else that we always saw, not just during the Cold War, but during the Iraq invasion. Um, we've seen a couple of small things. But they're, they're just, they're not there. And I've had well, my own opinion of, of those people for a long time. I hope more and more people realize what those organizations are, what their real motivation is, because they're nowhere to be seen, and that's just that – everybody should understand who those people are and what they are because it should be clear now. It's just disgusting. Yeah, don't, don't mince words. You know, they're, they, were, they were people – their fronts paid for by the, by the, the very people – very same people are carrying out these atrocities. And they have been. It, it is a way of uh, mobilizing, giving the, the Western – world, uh, you know, a bad look because they're protesting against this stuff. And well, you know, for, for years, uh, 
back, you know, uh, probably before, maybe even during the Korean War, you know, they were they were they're a third, they're that that uh, third front. You have to, I know, it's a front. Uh, don't tap the sign. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is a front you have to to fight, and it's been sponsored and paid for by by people in 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 Russia, and and in China for that matter. So, you know, if if you have a human rights violation in China, uh, and you can, which basically is the whole country is a human rights violation, but uh, you know, you you hear about it in certain areas, but not in and the mainstream press. Every now and then one story will break out above all the others. Uh, Tiananmen Square is an example, or the, maybe the, the, uh, what they're doing to the Uyghurs in, in, uh, in China. But it doesn't stay in the press very long because there's an influence. It, yeah, there's an influence at work there, and it's a, an influence that involves money and Lord knows what else, but there's some kind of pressure being brought. Well, it's the same thing that's gone on with the, with these, uh, the downplaying of what the Russians have done in Ukraine. And the Ukraine has its own issues, and they're pretty yep. good at this, at this public affairs stuff. But, you know, nobody's hands are clean in warfare. I hate to tell anybody this, you know. I was, I was reading a, uh, about Agincourt the other day, and you forget that, that Henry uh, ordered, captured uh, French uh, soldiers uh, to be executed because he didn't want them behind, you know. He had, they had to have somebody guarding them, but the French were still coming at him, so he, he didn't want to have to face... Um, uh, a force from behind. So he, he had a lot of these people executed. And, you know, that was the reality of war then. It's the reality of, and then, you know, there some, a lot of the other realities that we, we still see going on in places like when we were in the in the uh, former Republic of, of Yugoslavia. You know, the rapes, the, 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 the whole process and uh, uh, the way war has gone on is is not it's not ancient history. It is yesterday's history and today's today's world. And it we don't it doesn't get reported enough, but it it, it exists. And yeah, the, the those people who used to march, they're they're you know you you know exactly who they are. They 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 are the socialists and we love Russia crowd and and. Uh, and and there's a Ukraine. We love Ukraine, no matter what crowd too. So uh, you just have to be real careful about how how you look at this stuff because it's going to go on. And you're right; it is warfare. Yeah, it, it's you know one of the interesting things is you always have to be careful. Is um, uh, an interesting point where there are um, good people, well-meaning people that just happen to think of things from the different side of the political spectrum. And one of the funnier things that we've seen and has actually gotten some traction internationally is NAFO, the North American Fellows Organization, which is a bunch of people who've getting together to help buy equipment for the, the Georgian Legion, which are the Georgians fighting for Ukrainian. And they do a bunch of memes and little, uh, and the little Shima Ibu puppy dog, characters that you see and they, they've raised some good money but what's interesting about it is you have people who you would normally define as left of center and you have people who you would normally define as right of center but they've all kind of come together uh, to support uh, that organization and uh, there are people uh, on the, the far left that by their silence speak pretty well and there are actually some people on the right side of the spectrum that seem to be Russian apologists that uh, is interesting in, in its own. Uh, but that, that's one of the interesting things is there can be uh, occasions that step up where well-meaning people, and at least our domestic uh, political spectrum, when they get together like that, that's usually a good indication that it's, it's a decent cause. But the uh, I think one of the, the great, and we can blame COVID a little bit, but we'll see in the fall when there's no excuse because most universities are going to be back full in the fall. Uh, they really were last year too, but they really will be this year. Is, you know, where is all the peace, love, and understanding uh, civil rights people that uh, would march so readily in our college campuses? Uh, you don't you don't hear from them, and I think it has a lot to do with 
with what you what you said before. Uh, but that's just the time we live in. I just think it's important to, when you get a chance, to go ahead and, and point that stuff out. Uh, somebody's got to say it, and sometimes you just don't notice it, but you've got to mention it. Well, you know, you got to watch out for me. I'm, a, I'm having been involved in the in the Great Vietnam War stuff. Uh, I haven't seen a Jane Fonda movie in 40, 50, I don't know how many years, a lot of years, 50, 50 some years probably. So, uh, you know, I don't understand how she got away with what she got away with, and and uh, you know, I know she's apologized sincerely, I'm sure, about that. But good gosh. Uh, Somebody going to, of course, you know, part of the problem is we never really declare war anymore. So, you know, well, I, I was just there visiting. I didn't know anything was going on. Yeah, at least we don't have anybody anybody doing that. Um, the, the thing that still leaves me to to ponder is I don't think we're going to get anything else now that the NDAA is out out of D.C. And we had an election coming up in November, so all the politicians are doing what they need to do between now and November. And I guess we'll have to figure out what's going to happen uh, after the election. Uh, everybody says there's a pretty good chance that the, the House will flip from the Democrat to Republican control. Uh, the Senate, I think, is a coin flip for a variety of reasons. But again, not my area of expertise. And I was trying to think, okay, will this really make a difference for what we've been talking about for this entire episode? And I don't, I don't know. I, I, it's not clear. It's not obvious. Like there are some other, you know, political issues that I can draw, draw a pretty sharp line that it'll make a difference. And then. Of when the new Congress steps in, we already start the campaign for 2024, and so that's going to mud things up. But uh, one of the things that's been nice the last couple of years is we did have a knowledgeable and impactful um, member of Congress from the Democrat side of the House who was very, very engaged. That was Representative Luria from Virginia. She's got a pretty tight race. Uh, if she doesn't survive the the blue wave you know i'm looking around on the other democrat side of the house who has her knowledge her passion and her ability to uh, work responsibly and trustworthy across the aisle which is the reputation i think she's justifiably deserved because regardless of who's in power you need both parties to do that so again the question i (laughs) you and i have, have asked people for years it still goes back um, who on the Democrat side of the House are going to help us push? Because something this important cannot be a partisan issue. And uh, so I, I, that will be something I'm sure we will talk about in the fall and working into the wintertime about in the maritime side of the national security arena, where are positions and players going that might be able to to move the needle in a, a direction that we think it needs to go. I I really I, I don't even have a clearly laid out plan A, B, and C on that right now. Yeah, I think it's just uh, it's just that the the task ahead. I you know I, I feel like Sisyphus. The ta- you, you start looking at the task ahead looks so large that uh, because we we. 20 years really of neglect of the of the navy and the fleet um, and yep. the maritime uh, community as a whole that uh, it just makes me shake my head there's a big uphill climb here and it's got to be funded and you know funding is uh, driven by let's every 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 ship has to have at least one component made in every single state so uh, we just need some really serious adult leadership in the in the uh, Senate and in the House of Representatives to to lead on, and we've fortunately we've had some good people in the in the uh, House uh, speaking up. I don't think I've heard too many senators jumping on this bandwagon yet, but we need at least a couple. Yeah, well, uh, we'll we'll always find out, that's for sure. But again, another quick hour 
of maritime excellence. I, I don't know if we solved all the problems, but we, <laughs> we, we, we pointed out a few that I, I'm sure will be folded into uh, other conversations as we go forward. So that brings July to an end. I guess August is a kickoff, so everybody will be to have kids will be focused on getting them in school. Uh, the Congress critters will be crittering around because uh, I think people used to say that it, you know the, the real hard stretch starts after Labor Day. I don't think that's true anymore. It goes earlier than that because of the technology, but uh, we'll just keep plugging along here. Yep. That's all we can do. That's all we can do. And, uh, hey, everybody. And we just, just ask our listeners to keep plugging away with us. Amen. Uh, we've got some, some great loyal listeners and uh, and pass the word. And speaking of which, I always like to do this during we have our melees and our free for alls. If you've made it this far past the hour, uh, that means you like mid rats. You like listening here. If you haven't already, go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five star rating. Uh, tell us how wonderful we are and how great our sound quality is. And uh, don't give us a four star. Give us a five star. That isn't because we're needy, which we might be, but it's what that does is when other people want to get a podcast that concerns U.S. Navy or maritime issues, uh, we will continue to pop at the top of the search items, and that'll bring more people on to listen to the podcast. So if y'all could do that for us, i greatly appreciate that. Uh, until then, I hope everybody has a great Navy Day, and we'll check you on the next podcast. Cheers, everybody. helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.